Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be bringing this chapter to a close today. Last Lord's Day, uh, Pastor Inro ended around verse 58. So we're going to be looking broadly at verses 59 through 71. And as you're turning there, let me apologize ahead of time. I got, I caught something on Monday night. And uh, my throat hurt for overnight. And then it, then it left. And then I was left with stuffy, stuffy head, coughing and sneezing my brains out half the week. So <clears throat> hopefully I don't get into a coughing fit today. But if I do, just bear with me. Now, as I said, we will consider verses 59 through 71. But for a reminder of the context, let's start our reading from verse 41. Hear now the word of our Lord. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that everyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not the bread, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who would, did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Fathers, we come now to this most sacred time to open your word, to declare it, to explain it. Lord, may you be with us today. May you teach us, convict us, conform us, encourage us, and strengthen our faith that we be not 
among those who turn their back on you and walk away. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, whenever you're dealing with a size this big, a text, there are many things you can dive into. However, we've been working at a certain pace in this series. And so in keeping with that tempo, uh, one of the things that I wanted, that I asked myself when studying the end of this chapter is what is, what stands out to me the most? What kind of sticks out the most? What is the overall feeling that I get from this block of text? And one of the first things to stand out to me was just how this chapter seems to end on such a negative note, especially when you consider how the chapter started. Now think about this for a second. How did this whole section begin? If we go back up to verse 2, we were told that a large crowd was following Jesus. And then we find out from verse 10 just how big that crowd was. It was at least 5,000 people. Now, I say at least 5,000 because Matthew tells us in his gospel that that number did not include the women and the children. So there could have been 10,000, 15,000. Some scholars say there might have been even as many as 20,000 people. We don't know the total number, but we do know there were at least 5,000 men. And even if you just start there, that's a pretty large crowd to be following some guy around on the countryside. And I would like to think and imagine that being a part of that crowd had to be pretty exciting, encouraging. You know, when Amanda and I lived in New Orleans back in 98, we attended Franklin Avenue Baptist Church. And I heard that they got around 5,000 people every Sunday. We would never see all the people because even though the building was fairly big, it only sat like 2,000 at a time, so we had three services every Sunday morning to accommodate everybody. And I got to tell you, it was pretty exciting to be a part of that, especially when you considered where the church was. It was in one of the worst areas of New Orleans, the infamous Ninth Ward. It was exciting to see all the people coming to church. And then there was the singing. My word, the singing Understand something, this is a black church. Amanda and I were probably maybe the only white couple there that came that went consistently. There were visitors, but we were the only ones going consistently. And you know, you know, I, I sing horribly, but that that was easily drowned out. Easily. The singing was incredible. So it's not hard for me to imagine that the disciples here had to be pretty excited about this crowd of 5,000 people, at least. I mean, imagine if our church here got up to 5,000 people. I think that would be pretty awesome. But notice what happens as this chapter progresses. First, you have the crowd wanting to make Jesus king. And you may be thinking, well, that's a good thing, right? Well, actually, no, it wasn't. And Jesus walks away from them. And at that point, I would imagine there are probably a few people that got upset then. It's like, why is he walking away from us? We want to make him king. Isn't this what this is all about? Where's he going? So you probably had a few upset people at this point. But so far, things haven't gotten too bad. Why? Because we read in verses 22 through 24, 
that there's still a crowd the next day, and they're actively seeking Jesus. But then when they find him, he rebukes them a bit, and then he starts into his teaching about being the bread from heaven, the bread of life. And then after explaining that a little bit, we read in verse 41 that the Jews now are starting to grumble because of what he taught. How is it that he can say that he is bread that came down from heaven? Now, we know this guy. We know his father. We know his mother. We know where he came from. He didn't come down from heaven. So this whole coming down from heaven thing was bad enough, but then it gets even worse. Jesus then goes on to tell him that the bread is his flesh. Now, verse 52, they're starting to argue with one another in the crowd. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now it's getting really bad. Think about it. This crowd is already upset that Jesus is claiming to have come down from heaven. They don't get that part. Now they're being told to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Remember who these people are. These are Jews. These are people who were told by God in their sacred scripture to not eat or drink blood from anything, from any fowl or any animal. And if you do get caught drinking blood, you're cut off from the people. So you know this had to be the last straw for many of them. This was it. And then we read in verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? By the way, that's not a sincere question there on their part. They're grumbling, verse 61. They're complaining. They've had it. Who can listen to this nonsense? Not us. And then after this, verse 66, many of the disciples turned their back and no longer walked with Jesus. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and asks them, do you want to go away as well? Do you see what's happening here? This chapter, chapter started off with Jesus having at least, bare minimum, 5,000 people following him around, potentially up to 10 to 15, maybe even 20,000 in total. And after only one sermon, the crowd vanishes, and he's down to asking the inner circle of 12 if they want to leave as well. Now, the text doesn't explicitly tell us that every single one of these people except the 12 left. But the fact that he turns to the 12 to ask them if they want to go indicates to me that it's, it's likely they all left. I mean, if only a few hundred or so left, it wouldn't make sense to then turn, well, do you want to leave? Well, who cares? There's, just this, there's only 20 people, Jesus. not a big deal. This doesn't sound like a response he would give. But the fact that he turns to them and asks that sounds to me like either they all have left or almost everyone has left. And so then he turns to them and says, well, do you want to go away as well? And it doesn't even stop there. Even with the 12, one of them is a devil and is going to betray Jesus. So now we're down to 11. What would you think? What would you do if this church got up to around 5,000 to 10,000 people and then within a week or two, the attendance dropped to around, well, basically what we've got now? dozen people or so. You think there'd be some discussion, some talking, some speculation, 
some arguments, some grumbling, some accusations. You better believe there would be. Many a people would be looking for someone to blame. Was it the elders? Was it, was it a particular elder? Was it the deacons? Was it the sermon? Did the pastor say something highly offensive or wrong? Is there something wicked going on behind closed doors that we don't know about with the leadership and now God's punishing us? What's going on here? And I can tell you right now, there are many large churches today, they wouldn't even ask those questions. They'd shoot first, then ask questions later. They'd get rid of the pastor immediately and replace him. They wouldn't even ask, whether it's his fault or not. You let our church go from 5,000 down to 12, you're out of here. But whatever the cause may be, we would all be asking questions. We'd all be talking. Because it just doesn't seem right. Something here is off. And yet, this is how John chapter 6 ends. It started off with at least 5,000 people following Jesus, which again, you know had to be exciting and encouraging to folks. Man, look at this crowd. This is great. This is proof, right, that Jesus is on to something. And hey, look at us. We even got in on it early. And we get to see this thing grow and, and this change the world. And yet only after one sermon, we go from that to grumbling and arguing and complaining. And finally, verse 66, many of the disciples turning their back and no longer walking with Jesus. And then he turns to the 12 and asks if they want to leave as well. I cannot help but think that this is all intentional on John's part. I mean, it's all intentional, but the point, what's intentional here, I believe, is that he wants you to see this. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to think about the numbers, how it went from a minimum of 5,000 down to 12, and even of the 12, one of them is a devil, and so now we're down to 11. In fact, if you keep reading, the next chapter begins with telling us that Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him, and that his own brothers, his own family, Say this to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You ever heard that before? I've heard it from atheists, especially. Well, if there's a God, there's, why don't he show himself? Show himself to the world. Why is he being so secretive? And then verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. How bad is this getting? This doesn't look good at all. That not even his own family believed that he was who he said he was. From all appearances, this chapter ends with a note of massive failure for Jesus in his ministry. He went from at least 5,000 down to 12, one of them is a devil, and that not even his own family members believe that he is who he says he is. You know they had to have been thinking it. And this is going nowhere. This is a lost cause. This is a complete failure. In fact, I wonder if this is what got the ball rolling in Judas's mind to later betray Jesus. Perhaps Judas was on board when the, when the crowds were there and they wanted to make him king. But when he saw Jesus walk away from them 
And then he watches the crowd shrink to almost nothing because Jesus is offending people with his sermon. That may have been the point where he thought, yeah, this, this, is, this is a joke. This is not going anywhere. I mean, I'll ride this thing out a little longer to see what I can get out of it for me. But th- this, is, this is a complete failure. But now here's the million-dollar question for you today. Was this a failure on Jesus' part? I said earlier that I believe John wants us, the readers, to see this drop in the numbers. He wants us to think about it. However, I have not said yet what John wants us to think about it. And one of the reasons, besides the fact that John highlights the numbers, that I believe he wants us to think about this whole episode in these terms is because he also tells us what to think about it via the words of Jesus. In other words, if the question is, is this all a failure, notice now that John not only provides an answer to that question, he does so multiple times in this text. So, what's the answer? How do we explain a crowd of disciples dropping down to around a dozen or so from at least 5,000? How do we explain it even among Jesus' inner circle that one of them was a traitor? Is there any other way to view this whole episode other than seeing this as a complete failure on Jesus' part? Yes, there is another way to see it. Jesus gives us the answer multiple times. But before we consider his answer, let's consider what Jesus never says or does here. First of all, Jesus never sought out any church growth experts who no doubt would have polished him up a bit and trained him to give easier and non-offensive sermons so that you don't lose anybody. He doesn't do that here. Secondly, notice Jesus never apologized for his sermon. He never says, you know what, I eh, probably shouldn't have said that. I mean, clearly people were struggling with it. Clearly people got offended. I shouldn't have said it. I apologize. I'll do better next time. He never does it. Then third, not only did he not apologize for what he said after the fact, Jesus actually went through with the sermon knowing beforehand that it wasn't going to go well. Notice what it says in verses 61 through 64. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit of life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then in parentheses, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. You see that? He knew before he even began his sermon that there were unbelievers and betrayers. He knew that they would have a hard time with his sermon and would grumble about it. Yet he preached it anyways. He didn't rework it. He didn't water it down. He didn't alter the truth. He didn't skip certain parts. He knew this wasn't going to go down well. He knew this was going to challenge them. And he knew it would result in many walking away from him. Yet, he carried on with it. 
Again, why? How do we explain this? What's the answer? Did Jesus sabotage his own ministry? Well, let's consider now what he does say. First, he says this, verses 27 through 29. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, beloved, God has a purpose, a will. And Jesus was appointed to us by the Father to accomplish that purpose. Is this not what we have seen already multiple times here in the Gospels of John? For example, in John 1, 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Verses 16 through 18 of chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then verses 31 through 36, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then chapter 5, starting in verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, of, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. <coughs> he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are on the in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and done, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. 
There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent the John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You cert the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Beloved, we're only six chapters in, and yet has it not been made abundantly clear that on Jesus, God the Father has set his seal by appointing him to carry out the will and the purpose of the Father? Why did Jesus carry on with a sermon that would offend and lose some people? Because that was the will and the purpose of the Father. Why did Jesus not skip over offensive parts? Because that was the will and the purpose of the Father. Why did Jesus not water his sermon down, knowing that many would not get it? Because that was the will and purpose of of the Father. Everything Jesus did, everything that he said, and everything that he didn't do or say was all governed by his mission to carry out the will and purpose of the Father. You cannot miss that. Now, if you're thinking ahead, you're probably asking yourself right now, well, wait a second, Jason. Jesus did not alter the sermon. If he didn't change it up to make it easier to swallow, if he didn't skip over difficult parts, knowing that people would get offended with it and have trouble with it, walk away, seems to me, Jason, that all this is suggesting that it was, in fact, the will and purpose of God that not everyone get it. It seems to me, Jason, that you're suggesting that this failure was planned. To which I say, yes. It was all planned. It was not the will and purpose of God that all 5,000 men believe in Christ without exception. But also this, that because it was never the will of God that all 5,000 men believe, it was therefore not a failure. The fact that it dwindled down to 12 people is exactly what God planned. Well, this sounds like that darn Calvinism baloney. Well, it is. It is Calvinism. 
This is what we affirm. But it wasn't Calvin that came up with this stuff. Jesus did. This, this is Jesus' answer here in the text. For not only did he claim that on him God the Father has set his seal, he also says this in John 6, 36 through 39. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Then verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered him, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And again, verses 60 through 64 here at the end. But this time I'm going to include verse 65 because it explains it all. When many of his, of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, uh, who did not believe and who it was who would betray them. And then verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you. Here's the reason. Here's the answer. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That word granted there corresponds to the words given, gives, and draws up above. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Beloved, this is the answer that Jesus gives us. This is the solution to the so-called problem of failure here in this chapter. It wasn't a failure. It went exactly as planned because it was never the plan that all without exception would be granted to come to the Father. You will see this massive drop of around 5,000 people down to a dozen or so only as a failure if you fail to grasp the will and purpose of God for which Jesus came. Do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
and the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It is the spirit who gives life. Man's fallen nature is unable to produce saving faith. Remember what he said to Nicodemus, chapter 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Beloved, the spirit of God is beyond the scope of our control or manipulation. He works as he chooses to work. And it is he who creates life through the word that he inspired. And it is he who overcomes our hostility in those whom the Father has chosen and grants to come to the Son. Beloved, this is no failure at all. For this is precisely what Christ came to fulfill. And Peter understood it. You know, there's a lot of stuff Peter got wrong, and he'll even make some mistakes after this. But he got this point down. Verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, let's go chasing after him. No, that's not what he said. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? By the way, that's a rhetorical question. Peter here is making a statement. Beloved, to whom shall we go? Should we go to the church experts, the growth experts, who think we should water down what we say and not say anything that may be offensive to people so that we don't lose anybody? Should we go to those who have walked off and apologized to them for teaching the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Should we go to some of these megachurches and join the ranks of heretics and false teachers that are so prevalent in those groups? Not all of them, but many of them. Or perhaps we should go and deny the divinity of Christ or go talk gibberish and bark in the pews, name it, claim it, Perhaps we should go where the action is, where they've got smoke machines and concerts and they flip songs by Beyonce and Jay-Z and make them in the praise hits. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Or we don't have to go that crazy. We can just go to a normal traditional church that for the most part does pretty good, but conveniently skips over certain texts or likes to give a little twist to certain texts like Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and John chapter 6 because they don't want to acknowledge that God has eternally decreed all things. Or perhaps we should go join ranks with the dispensationalist who would appear to agree with us that Jesus didn't fail. But it's not because what happened in this chapter was dec decreed by God to happen. It was because the Jews who failed to see who Jesus was and so then Jesus had to put the plan on hold until some unforeseen time in the future when they finally figure out who he is. Beloved, there are tons of places to go if you're looking for excuses. But Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have 
the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, isn't that amazing? Despite all the difficulty in this chapter, despite all the grumbling, despite all the complaints of how hard Jesus' teaching was, despite all the people who turned their backs on Jesus and walked away, Peter comes out of all of this with a beautiful profession of faith, expressing that a true disciple does not look to Jesus primarily for earthly power and provision, but for the truth that leads to salvation and communion with God. There is nowhere else to go. Where are you going to go? There's no one else to turn to. There are no other methods. There is no other plan. There is no other purpose. And I thank God that our Reformed forefathers in the faith understood this, and they didn't want us to miss that purpose as well. It's interesting how often John 6 comes up in the Westminster Standards. That's what I love about Logos. I can just pull up the standards and just search John 6, and bam, 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 bam. it all comes up. I want to read some of these to you. And as I do, I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it, and I want you to hear it. Listen to what these men said, statements that they made about doctrine and life that's partially influenced by what we see in John 6. It's not solely on John 6, but this is one of the texts that they appeal to. They say, for example, in chapter 1, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be, a necessar- to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. Chapter 3. As God hath, hath appointed the elect unto glory... So he, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Chapter 7, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Chapter uh, chapter 8, to all those for whom Christ has purchased redemption. He doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, 
effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Chapter 9. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether adverse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Chapter 10, all those whom God has predestinated unto life and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. And in the larger catechism, redemption is certainly applied and effectually communicated to all those for whom Christ hath purchased it, who are in time by the Holy Ghost enabled to believe in Christ according to the gospel. And on and on it goes. Beloved, Christ did not fail. Yes, I know how it looked. And we know how many, if not most, perceived it. And frankly, not much has changed even today. This still goes on today. Think of all the difficulties we face in life. Think of all the difficulties you may have faced just in last year alone. Problems with friends, problems with family, doubts. Take a look around you. We're tiny. There's some churches right up the road have got thousands of people just having a grand old time. But beloved, I want you to be encouraged today. The end of John chapter 6. The crazy thing is, is as we come to the end of this chapter, we have what appears to be a massive failure and a source of discouragement. Everything about this screams failure. That is, until you understand the plan, the purpose. Do you get it? Do you see it? Do you judge according to the flesh? Or do you judge by the Spirit? To whom do you go? I'll close with these words from Paul. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, 
It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you in his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. It wasn't a failure. It's how it looked. But we don't look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. To whom will you go? Let us pray.